0: to the scriptures. We think, Lord, of how you told Abraham that you would be his shield, that you would be his very great reward. And Lord, we, we think again of the way that you brought him outside and told him to look to the heavens and thus would his offspring be. And Father, we ask that as we think on these realities, you would cause us to respond as he did, believing your promise that through the seed of the woman, through the seed of Abraham, the seed of Judah, you would save the world. And that the promise of land to Abraham was not merely inheritance rights or property rights or something of that sort, Lord, but it was a promise that once again, the seed of the woman those who represent you, those who bear your image and likeness would exercise dominion in your world, that your glory would be seen as they bring your character to bear in the way that they live as your vice regents. Lord, we ask that you would give us this faith. We pray that you would make us like Abraham who though he did not receive the promises waited on them from afar, and died in faith. Father, we pray that you would work this way in our hearts, make us steadfast and immovable and unwearying in our commitment to doing good. We ask that you would give us the certainty and the freedom from knowing that you have reckoned our righteousness, our faith as righteousness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to proclaim the gospel indiscriminately. and as Denny prayed, Lord, we pray that it would bear fruit. We pray that people would come to know you, that lives would be transformed, and that your name would be exalted. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in accordance with what I've just prayed, I want to return to some things that we saw last week in Genesis 15, so I would invite you to open this morning uh, to Genesis 15, and we're going to pick it up in verse 7, but I need to finish some things from verse 6. And as I, as I come at that, um, before coronavirus happened, the elders enjoyed an elders' retreat together uh, last winter, and we, you know, we've been having these Sunday night evangelistic events, And we decided at our elders' retreat that rather than having a summer evangelistic Sunday night event, what we were going to try to do is encourage people to, um, uh, for there to be a designated time when the members of the church would invite someone uh, in their neighborhood or in their sphere of influence into their home. And as we approached Genesis 15 last week, it struck me anew that this is a great time for us to be seeking as a church to be evangelistic. So the motivation for this this sort of gospel comes with a house key approach to evangelism as opposed to an event that takes a lot of congregational energy and a lot of volunteer effort. The motivation is for us to seek to build strong relationships with people, for us to be investing in people's lives because I think it's true in our day that we're going to need relational standing with people we're going to need relational capital with people in order for them to trust us when we tell them that there is a god and that this god actually sent his son to die for us and that if if you believe this message this god amazingly he reckons faith as righteousness and as we saw last week this is scandalous good news This is good news that will scandalize people who have a standard of righteousness that they expect themselves and others to look up to. Because the Bible is saying, actually, the God who made the world has only one standard and it is absolute holiness. But you can be reckoned as having met that standard by faith if you will believe his word. So this is is the gospel that we're trying to proclaim and so... Here, here's what I'm putting before you. Growing out of what we saw last week, Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. We, are, we want to commit ourselves to prayer, and I want to encourage you to think toward the first two weeks of August. And, and I know that things could change with coronavirus. I know that things are up in the air, and I know that people have differing comfort levels in terms of, of whether you're willing to be in proximity to other people or have people into your home. So I just want to say, whatever you're comfortable with, okay? If you're, if you're comfortable having people into your home, great. Invi- I would encourage you to invite someone in your sphere of life, in your sphere of influence, into your home or into your backyard for a, an extended time of conversation in which we hope you will be building a relationship, hopefully sharing the gospel that very night, but hopefully this, this can come uh, in the context of an ongoing relational commitment to loving your neighbors and seeking to have their, their lives intersected with the gospel, that they might know the living God. That's what we're really after. So that's what we want to commit to pray for and pray toward uh, as a church. And, and I would encourage you to be thinking toward the first two weeks of August in which uh, you hope to, to have some people over. And I'll tell you what, what I hope to do. What I, I haven't even shared this with my wife, so I'm springing this on her right now. Uh, so this is subject to approval. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Um, uh, I've been coaching uh, Jake and Jed's baseball team for some time now and some of these kids that are on this team, um, I've been, we, were, we were talking about this yesterday, I've, been, I've had these kids since they were eight years old and Jake's 16 now. And so we've been with these kids uh, for, for years and they've heard the gospel from my lips repeatedly over the years and I'm, we're, we're gonna finish up playing baseball uh, the weekend after next for the summer and I'm hoping that we're gonna have a team party at our house. And either I or maybe Brian Payne, who's a dad on the team, somebody's going to share the gospel with those kids. Somebody's going to share the gospel in the form of a testimony that's related to sports. And those kids are going to hear the gospel again. And, and this comes in the context, again, of a long-standing relationship with these people where, where we've, we've hopefully built up uh, some capital with them. And hopefully we'll have an ongoing relationship with them. And so really all of this is just designed. Everything I'm saying right now is, is designed, hopefully, to spur your thinking in the direction of who can I be investing in? And then who can I be praying toward the Lord possibly uh, prompting me to invite someone into my, into my home that I might be about the work of making disciples in this kind of, in this kind of way? And we have every reason to do this because as we saw last week, Genesis 15, verse 1, the Lord tells Abram, fear not, Abram. And, and I hope that you'll hear uh, in your ears, you know, Isaiah speaks and the Proverbs speak about how if you, if you meditate on the scriptures, they will talk with you when you wake up in the morning. And I hope that as you think about uh crossing the line and and going there to invite somebody over, or you get them over and you're at the point of decision where you're going to go there with them. You're going to try to take them into a gospel conversation. I hope you'll hear the Lord speaking in your ear, fear not. I am your shield. You have an almighty defender who is with you. And as I Said last week, I think the NIV's rendering is better than the ESV's of of Genesis 15:1. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your very great reward. The Lord is saying, I am your reward. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth going there with your friends, your neighbors, these people in your sphere of influence. And this message is so freeing, so liberating, that if you believe the promise, you can be reckoned as righteous. It's glorious. Uh, As we saw last week, the specific uh, promise that Abram believes believes in Genesis 15, 1 through 6 pertains to the promise of seed. You see there again in verse 3, Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, no seed. And we've been talking as we've been moving through the book of Genesis about how uh, God placed man in the garden for him to have dominion over the animals and for him to work and keep the garden. And I've been saying as we've been working through this that Adam's responsibility as one made in the image and likeness of God was to bring the character of God to bear in all of God's creation. And as he rules and subdues the garden, he makes it so that all the dry lands are like the garden in that as he's fruitful and multiplies, more image bearers fill the lands And God's glory is brought to bear on all creation everywhere. That, I think, is God's purpose as He makes the world, as He puts Adam in the garden like a high priest in the Holy of Holies and tells him to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and as He tells him to to rule and subdue. I think the idea is expand the borders of the Garden of Eden, expand the place where God dwells with his creatures, and make God's glory known everywhere. And instead of that, there's this tragic fall, this failure, as a result of which man is driven out of God's presence, experiencing spiritual death and also eventually physical death. But God gives a promise that the seed of the woman would Crush the serpent's head. And then the the line of descent of the seed is tracked down eventually to Abram in in Genesis 12. And God promises to Abraham, land, and again, as I prayed, that promise of land is not just about that little strip of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. That promise of land is a promise of a beachhead from which God is going to retake all of fortress Europe, or really, uh, fortress earth. God is going to retake the whole world, and he's going to make... The land of promise, the starting point. And this is why Paul in Romans 4 speaks of Abraham, Abraham becoming an heir of the world. Land, seed, offspring. Through the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. As the seed of the woman crushes the serpent's head and removes uh, the the results of sin, and the one who, who instigated people to sin. He defeats all that, and he overcomes all that, and then God's blessing also is going to rest. So land, seed, and blessing, and really what this promise is about is about the salvation of the whole world. It's about what God has done in Christ. That's what the promise is about, the promise of land, seed, and blessing. So we see blessing in Genesis 15 1, don't we? Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. And then the ESV has, your reward shall be very great. Again, I think a better rendering is, I am your shield, your very great reward. That's God's blessing resting on Abram. It's like God is saying to Abraham, again, you can be sure that I am going to bless you. And what I said in Genesis twelve three, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. That's still holding. I'm going to shield you from those who dishonor you. And I'm going to bless everyone who sides with you. And then we see the promise of seed there in verses 3 through, through 5. Look toward heaven, number the stars there in verse 5. So shall your seed, your offspring be. And, and now we pick it up in Genesis 15 verse 7. And hopefully today we'll finish this chapter. We're going to start here in, in uh, verses 7 through 11 with the preparations that Abraham makes for this sacrifice. But look with me at verse 7. He said to him, this is the Lord speaking, I am the Lord. And again, when you see that capital R, but it's smaller than the big L there, and the capital D, but it's smaller than the capital L, what he's saying is, I am Yahweh. This is how the English translations represent the divine name. He said to him, I am Yahweh, who brought you out. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it was in our call to worship. Uh, Exodus 20, verse 2, this is what the Lord says to the people of Israel when they come out to Mount Sinai. And on the third day, they gather at the foot of the mountain to meet with the Lord. And out of the midst of the fire on the mountaintop, the Lord begins to speak to the people of Israel. And what he says to them on that occasion is, I am the Lord your God. I'm Yahweh your God, who brought you out. Here he says to Abram, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. But there he says, out of the house of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Now, why would the Lord say the same thing to Israel that he says here to Abraham? Abram? Well, I would suggest that this joins up with the things that we saw in Genesis 12. You'll remember that starting in Genesis 12 verse 10, because of a famine, Abram goes down into Egypt. And when he gets down into Egypt, he tells that lie about Sarah. Sarah gets taken captive and she's She's brought into the harem of Pharaoh. She's made into a slave of sorts. And then the Lord enriches Abraham. Pharaoh deals well with Abraham. It's almost like Abraham plunders Pharaoh. That's using the language of the Exodus. And then God brings plagues on the house of Pharaoh, liberating Sarah. And Abraham and Sarah come up out of Egypt, and they make their way back into the land of promise. And now here in Genesis 15, in a covenant-making ceremony which is analogous to the covenant-making ceremony at Mount Sinai, the Lord says the same words to Abraham that he's going to say to Israel when they get to Mount Sinai. Here's what I would propose to you. The sovereign God is orchestrating history so that there is a preview of the exodus from Egypt in the life of the patriarch Abraham. Why is he doing this? He's doing this so that the biblical author, Moses, sees the repetition and understands this is the way that God is going to save his people in the future. And then Moses writes up the story this way so that people get it. And Joshua, for instance, writes up the story of the conquest of Canaan in a way that's very reminiscent of the Exodus, as though the conquest is a new Exodus. And then all across the Old Testament, as the Old Testament authors point to the future salvation, they talk about it as though it's going to be like the Exodus from Egypt. And then here comes Jesus, and they're talking about him, as though he's going to do a new exodus, a new exodus-style salvation. So I would argue that this is what God wanted people to conclude. This is why he orchestrated history this way. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, he inspires Moses to notice it, who writes it up this way so that people understand it and they perpetuate the expectation. And and remarkably, right after this in in verse 7 and following, uh, the Lord is, is going to prophesy of the exodus from Egypt to Abraham. Let's, let's continue here with the text. He said to him, I am the Lord, verse 7, who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. And he's talking specifically about the land of promise. So we're back to the, the, the promise, land, seed, and blessing. We got blessing in verse 1. We got seed in verses 3 through 5, and now we're to land. And really, the rest of the chapter is going to pertain to land. This is the issue. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees, Chaldeans to give you this land. Now, remarkably, I was just talking about how Israel, later in Genesis, because of a famine, they're going to go down into Egypt, and then God's going to do the exodus and bring them back to the land. And then as you continue through the rest of, of the history of the Old Testament, What's going to happen is they're going to break the covenant, and they're going to be driven into exile, and you know where they're going to go? They're going to go to this place called Babylon. And this guy named Daniel over in Babylon is going to have a lot of interaction with people referred to as Chaldeans. And then the the prophets are going to treat the the, uh, return from exile as though it's a new exodus and return from exile. So it's almost as though there's a preview not only of the exodus from Egypt but also a preview of the return from the exile to Babylon in Abraham's life. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then what follows is a lot like 15.1 through 6. So in 15.2, Abram said, "Oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. So he's questioning God about the promise. And we talked last week about how how Abram is probably not questioning God about the promise in a skeptical way. It's a, it's a believing question. It's an, I don't see how this is going to work kind of question, you know? I'm getting old. Sarah's been barren our whole lives. And, and I'm continuing without a child. And you haven't given me, verse 3, any offspring. And now he's saying, verse 8, O oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And we've talked about the the obstacles to the possession of the land. There are all these Canaanites that dwell in the land. The folks that we're going to read about down in verses 19 19 through 21. So there are all these Canaanites in the land. And just like he asked about the promise of seed, now Abram's asking about the promise of the land. I brought you out of Ur to give you this land. How am I to know that I shall possess it? And before I go on, I just want to say that you should... You should feel comfortable interacting with the Lord in prayer. That's what Abram's doing right here. The Lord is revealing himself to Abram. And and Abram, I think, is clearly believing the promises. Look at verse 6. He believed the Lord. Abram's believing the promises, but he's asking for help. Lord, how's this going to work? How am I going to know? How am I going to continue believing, we might say? So, as I said a minute ago... What God is going to do is reveal the future to Abram in this narrative. And what, what I want you to, to consider here is the question why is it that God reveals the future to Abram on this occasion, right? Abram's asking, How am I to know? And God's going to reveal the future to him. Why does God reveal the future to Abram about the Exodus from Egypt? I think the answer, the answer to the question is so that Abram will know. Look down at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. And then he goes on to reveal the future to Abram. And and the knowing is connected to the believing. This is the way that the Bible works. The Bible repeatedly tells us how things are going to play out long in the future. I mean, in this case... The Lord is telling Abraham about things that are going to happen 400 years from now. Abram is not going to live to see them come to pass. Abram has to believe that God is going to make things right in the end. That's the way the Bible works. That's why we have the book of Revelation. That's why we have the prophecies in the book of Daniel. The future is being revealed so that we can live faithfully, believingly, now in faith. And as we said last week, God doesn't come to Abram and say, Oh, you're having questions about the seed? Let me give you the seed right now. Let me give you Jesus right here and now. Nor does he say, on this now, Oh, you're having questions about the fulfillment of the promise of land? Let me give you the new heavens and new earth right now. He doesn't do that. He doesn't resolve all problems. He doesn't correct all wrongs. He doesn't, he doesn't even directly address the civilizational civilization I can't I don't know if I can say that word the problems with the civilization in which Abram lives we might refer to the societal or the structural problems in which Abram himself is operating which we'll see when we get to Genesis 16 the Lord does not directly address those things the Lord says I'm gonna save the world I'm gonna make all things new I'm gonna give you land seed and blessing And Abram is to continue in faith, as we read in Hebrews 11, hoping for the promise, looking for the city that is to come, but not yet receiving it in full. So verse 8, he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Now, I think Abram gets it. I think Abram understands the promise of land is about the promise of God bringing to pass his intentions and, and the representative of God, those who bear the image and likeness of God exercising God's character as they exercise God's dominion over God's world. But the Lord, the Lord deals with Abram in a way that makes sense in Abram's culture and in Abram's context. What happens right here would not make sense in our culture, but it makes sense in Abram's culture. And, and what, what God is doing is he is accommodating himself to Abram as he reveals himself to Abram. And here's an applicational point that I hope you'll see. I hope you see here the mercy and the kindness and the love of God in what he does here, in having Abram prepare a sacrifice. This is how you do things in the ancient Near East. It's not how you do things today. This is not the way we would, we would confirm a covenant in our culture. But it's the way that you confirm a covenant in the ancient Near East. And so God, it's like he stoops down low to enter into our little world. And he reveals himself to Abram in a way that makes sense to Abram in Abram's day. So in verse 9, he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old. Probably three years old because it's, it's likely at its prime value. Uh, the prime of the heifer's life. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he and he brought him all these. Verse ten. Cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now let's just let's just pause and take stock of what Abram has just done. And when I say take stock, there's kind of a literal. Uh, background to that expression, because you've got stock here. And and, and what I'm going to talk about is valuing these things, right? A heifer, that's like a cow. And a cow in our culture can cost anywhere from $300 to $1,000, depending on you know what kind of animal you get and how good it is and so forth. A goat, I'm guessing a goat would run in the range of, I don't know, maybe 100 to 500. Maybe somebody can correct my numbers. But these are, my point here is, These are expensive demands that the Lord is making. But God has revealed himself to Abram. Abram is in the presence of the living God. And the living God has said to him, fear not. I'm your shield. Your very great reward. And then the Lord makes these expensive demands. And there is no indication that Abram even paused for a millisecond to consider the cost. It was like, it seems, oh, you want a heifer? You got a heifer. You want a goat? You got a goat. You want some more? You want the whole flock? You can have it all. It is so clear who you are, God. It is so clear that you are fully and completely trustworthy, fully and completely able to provide for me that anything that you ask of me, you can have. That's the kind of experience Abram is having with God. And so God says, bring me a heifer. And and. The heifer's there. Cut it in half. It's cut in half. There's no, there's no consideration of the cost. And this is the way that we want to experience God, isn't it? If we experience God like this, and he says, I'm going to send your children to Afghanistan or some other faraway place that's dangerous, our hearts are going to respond, you can have them all. If we experience God, God like this, and he says, I want you to go to some distant land, what? We- Wherever, whenever, however. If we experience God like this and He says, I want you to treat your sibling whom you find to be so annoying with kindness, with patience, absolutely, whatever you say. If we experience God like this and we have a horrible boss and and the Lord says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Absolutely. Absolutely. No grumbling. Absolutely. Be thankful. Of course. Of course. Living sacrifices. You hear what? you hear? I'm trying to make this applica- application here. Present your bodies in view of God's mercies as living sacrifices. Because this is who God is. And, and if we know him... We'll respond just like Abraham. Whatever you say. Whatever you want. And we won't reserve for ourselves. Oh, but God, I'd really like to continue to complain. Oh, but God, I'd really like to continue to be mean. Oh, but God, I'd really like to... No. I don't want to continue to to indulge my lusts. I don't want to continue to cultivate my greed. I don't want to continue to nurse my pride. Whatever you say, Lord, you can have it. You're the boss. Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. That's all Abram does. Abram prepares the sacrifice. And then, look at verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. Abram prepares the sacrifice, and then Abram goes to sleep. That's all he does. And, and I, would, I would propose to you that, that what we do is we prepare the sacrifice. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices in whatever, the way, whatever way the Lord asks of us, and then we rest in Him. We trust Him. We let Him do the work. He's God. We prepare the sacrifice. We share the gospel, and we trust it to Him. We let Him... We let him direct the seed and whether it falls on which kind of soil. Uh, we, We respond with blessing and not cursing. And then we let him do the defending. We let him do the vindicating. We trust him. We rest. Now before we continue, let me draw your attention to the way that verses 12 and 17 are similar. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, verse 17, when the sun had gone down. And the ESV has verse 17 starting a new paragraph, and that may be right, but I'm inclined to think rather that verse 17 is like the concluding statement of the unit of verses 12 through 17. So I think that 12 through 17 start, are, are, are one unit within this text, and then verse 18 starts a sort of concluding statement. But at any rate, in verse 12, as the sun, sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So this comes in the context of of what uh, people refer to as a theophany. That is, God is revealing himself. God is manifesting himself to Abram. And what what follows here in verses 12 12 through 17 is a lot like what is going to happen with Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. At Mount Sinai, when, when the people of Israel arrive there and, and the Lord comes down on the mountain, there's thick darkness and there's an earthquake and smoke is going up from the mountain. The ESV renders it like the smoke of a kiln. And in this passage, we're going to have a smoking fire pot down in verse 17. So not only are the words of 15.7 really similar to Exodus 20, verse 2, the theophany in 15.12-17 through 17 is a lot like the theophany at Mount Sinai. And, and so dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. This is coming from the presence of God. Abram is experiencing the living God who cannot be contained by the, the parameters of this world. And, and so this infinite, uncontainable God is breaking into the, the small dimensions that He has made. And then the Lord, verse 13, said to Abram, Know for certain. And here again we see the mercy and the kindness of God in the interaction between Abram and the Lord. Because back up in verse 8 Abram says to the Lord, how am I to know? And now the Lord says to Abram, know for certain. And and what he's essentially saying is, this is how. And, And what he's going to do is tell him what's going to happen. Know for certain, here verse 13, that your seed. There's the promise of seed again. Abram, don't doubt the promise. I'm going to give you seed. Know for certain that your seed will be sojourners. And we talked, we mentioned this last week how the Hebrew word for sojourner is the same word for Hagar's name in chapter 16, verse 1. So here, this reference to sojourners in 1513 connects us to 16.1, the reference to Hagar, the sojourner. We'll talk about that more next week, Lord willing. Know for certain that your offspring, your seed, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Okay, so... Uh, we know from the way this works out that he's talking about Egypt. And we know that the service is going to be slavery. So the Lord is saying, your people are going to live in a land not their own, and they're going to be slaves. And they will be afflicted afflicted, for 400 years. And, and I would just encourage you to look at this and allow the Bible to inform your response to these things. Because what God does not do is he does not say, slavery is like the primary evil. No, he's not treating it that way. The primary evil is rebellion against God. I'm not saying slavery is good. Slavery is bad, okay? But God's objective in his existence is not to eradicate slavery. In fact, it seems God has ordained that the people of Israel be enslaved. Why would he do that? Because he wants to liberate them. He wants to be their savior from their slavery. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And and that is not an end unto itself. Look at verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So we know how this is going to work out. God is going to visit the 10 plagues on the people of Egypt, and then the Israelites are going to ask of their Egyptian neighbors for gold and and jewelry and earrings and all this stuff, and the Egyptians, because God has operated on their hearts, are going to give the Israelites all this stuff, and the Israelites are going to plunder the Egyptians, and they're going to come out of Egypt with the wealth of Egypt, and they're going to build the tabernacle when they get out into the wilderness at Mount Sinai. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, verse 15, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. So the Lord says to Abram, in essence, you're going to die before all this takes place. I'm going to tell the future to you so that you can live faithfully, so that you can keep believing the promise, so that you can know that one day, 400 years from now, your people are going to conquer the land... But you're going to die long before it happens. But you'll die in peace. And, and I would suggest to you that this is what it looks like to walk with God it looks like understanding, the, having perspective on history, and it looks like knowing that God has promised great things for the future that you're probably not going to see in your lifetime. But because you know God, because He has said to you, do not fear. I am your shield, your very great reward. You're able to walk with God and die in peace like Abram. And then verse 16, they, Abram's seed, his offspring, shall come back here in the fourth generation. There's probably a connection between the 400 years and the fourth generation. Generations are probably being reckoned in 100-year spans here. They shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And that's a little glimpse into God's purposes, I think, because it seems that God has an appointed amount of sin that he's going to allow the Amorites to commit. And then when they've filled up the measure of their sins, to use Paul's language, he's going to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, up into the land of Canaan to put these people under the ban and to destroy them to bring the the judgment of God upon them for their iniquity. Verse 17, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is such a remarkable statement because the first thing that, that we should note is how it closes off this unit of text as the Lord prophesies the future to Abram. Verses 12 and verse 17 connecting to each other. And then the darkness that we read about back up in verse 12. Behold, dreadful and great darkness. Now, verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark. And then a smoking firepot and flaming torch. So this represents the presence of God himself. So while Abram sleeps, the, the, the animals have been divided. And God himself is going to pass between the pieces. And we should reflect upon what is happening there. Because what is happening, as we know from the passage that we looked at in the book of Jeremiah Jeremiah last week, what's happening is the Lord is essentially saying, if I don't keep this covenant with you, Abraham, may what has been done to these animals be done to me. Which is impossible, isn't it? There is no way for the curses of the covenant to, to split God in half and kill him. That's impossible. So God is saying to Abraham... My own character and who I am in my infinite, unlimitable existence, absolute sheer being, I am guaranteeing that this covenant will be kept. I am going to do, Abraham, what I am promising. I'm going to bring the seed of the woman who will conquer the devil and who will Bring an end to all the enmity between the peoples of the earth. I am going to give you the land, meaning I'm going to to make this world my paradisical home in which I dwell with my people. And my blessing will be in all the places. God is going to do it, and he stakes his very existence upon it as he passes between the pieces. So it's stunning that God would do this. It's like what he's going to say later when when he says, uh, he says, I swear to you, this is Genesis 22, verse 16, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. And the author of Hebrews observes, having no one greater by whom to swear, the Lord swore by himself. He's saying, my own character is at stake. In me keeping this covenant and then the smoking fire pot the flaming torch when it says it passed between these pieces it's remarkable there, there's this verb in hebrew that is used in exodus uh, chapter 12 in verse 12 when the lord says i will pass through the land of egypt that night And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. So this is exactly what the Lord promised in Genesis 15, verse 14. I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And he says in Exodus 12, 12, I will pass through. And the verb is avar. It's the Passover verb. And that's the verb that's used to describe the Lord passing between the pieces. It's almost like There was a Passover as the Lord went between the pieces of these animals in this covenant-making sacrificial ceremony. So what's happening here is previewing the exodus from Egypt, which we also know is previewing what's going to happen when the Lord Jesus accomplishes his exodus in Jerusalem, when he dies as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's the moment when the Lord keeps the covenant. That's the moment when the Lord says something like, my people have broken the covenant, the children of Abraham have broken the covenant, but I'm going to keep the covenant. And because I keep the covenant, because I put forward Christ as a sacrifice of propitiation, I can declare ungodly sinners who believe to be righteous by faith. Verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your seed, promise of seed again, I give this land. And, and in the making of the covenant, there's a blessing, isn't there? Because a covenant is a, it's like a sworn guarantee of a relationship. And what's so beautiful about this is that it doesn't depend upon Abraham. Abram is asleep when the Lord does this for him. And what's so beautiful about knowing God and walking with God is that ultimately it does not depend upon us. It's it's like Paul saying, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. The hand that holds us will never let us go. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your seed, I give this land. It's like land, seed, and blessing all bound up together there in verse 18. The covenant is the blessing, the seed, the land, and then he tells them the dimensions of the land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates. And then he goes through these 10 nations, which the number 10 is a a well-known, recognizable symbol of wholeness in the Bible, meaning all the land the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So in this this glorious passage, we see God accommodating himself to Abraham's culture to reveal himself to Abraham for the benefit of Abraham's faith. And as we we sort of step back from this passage, I would invite you to, to consider... When, when did God begin to love Abram? When did God begin to love Abram? And to reflect on this with you for just a moment, I just want to think through some things with you about God as our creator and what it means for the creator to enter into covenant with his people. Okay, so the creator is the one who, as we saw in Genesis 1, He's the one who put the sun in the sky and he's the one who built the earth and he's the one who, who set the earth spinning on its axis and rotating around the sun in its gravitational orbit, right? So this, by necessity, means that the, the creator is outside these, these elements of creation that create time for us because time for us measures... The relationship between the the revolution of the earth on its axis and years are marked by the revolution around the sun in in the earth's gravitational orbit. So time is marked by the relationship between these events in creation and God is outside this creation. And so the theologians will say that all things are always an eternal present for the living God because he's not constrained by the sequence of of events from one event to another. He's above and outside all of that. So I think we can get a biblical answer to the question, when did God begin to love Abram from a passage like Jeremiah 31, verse verse, um, 3, where the Lord says, I have loved you with an everlasting love I have loved you with an everlasting love when did God begin to love Abram he never began to love Abram he always loved Abram and and for God to say I have loved you with an everlasting love is so it's just qualitatively different from I mean sometimes I'll say to my wife I have always loved you and what I mean is that I fell in love with her right away but I can never mean what God meant by that statement When God says, I have always loved you, what that means is there never was a time when he didn't love you. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. The love of God for Abram never had a beginning. And if you know God, if like Abram, you have placed your faith in this God and by faith you've been reckoned, reckoned righteous, declared righteous, there never was a time when God did not love you. Think of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He's the creator. He's outside time. So before time ever began, God God chose us in Christ. And then he goes on to say, Paul does, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. If you know God, there never was a time when God did not love you. And if you ask me, how do I know whether or not I love God? I would say to you, how do you respond to the promises of God? How do you respond to the news when God says, I'm going to save the world? I'm going to promise land, seed, and blessing to Abram. And I'm going to bring that about by sending the Lord Jesus. And I'm going to bring that about by building a new creation where all who have been resurrected with the Lord Jesus will exercise my dominion over my realm for my glory forever. If your heart rejoices in that news... If, if your heart says, that's what I want, I know that nothing else in the world can satisfy me, then you know God. You believe the promises. You believe the promises. You should respond to the promises in, in faith. If, if you've experienced God and you know there's nothing more compelling than him, there's much, nothing more rewarding than him, and also there's nothing more dangerous than him, there, there, would, there would be nothing more dangerous for me than to disobey or transgress or offend this holy God, then you've come to know the living God. You've come to believe his promises. And if you haven't, if you're, if you're deciding on that question, we'd love to have the conversation with you. We'd love to talk with you afterwards. I'll be hanging around afterwards. Matt will be around. The elders of this church will be around. Probably the person sitting next to you would love to have this conversation with you. If, if you want to know what it looks like to follow Jesus, we're here. We'd love to talk with you about it. And, and what we want you to know is what Abraham came to know when he experienced God. What Abraham came to know is uh, there is no warlord who can threaten me more than this God can. There is no enemy chieftain who is more dangerous to me than this God is. And there is no, there is no uh, suzerain whose vassal I can become who will be more rewarding to me than this God is. And there's no way I'm going to not do what this God says. So when he says, bring me a heifer, absolutely, whatever you want. That's what we want you to experience. We want you to experience God in that way. And I hope that the knowledge that before the foundation of the world, he predestined us in love. I hope that that knowledge works in our hearts the right way. Not in a way that leads to a license to sin, but in a way that says I'm secure. I'm secure in the very love of God, the everlasting love of God. And so I'm, because I'm secure, I'm also free. I'm free to love others. I'm free to tell people this scandalous good news, even if it might um, upset them because I'm telling them that they're a sinner and they need a savior. And I'm free to live for him. I'm free to be a living sacrifice. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd make this real for us. And I pray it would start to happen even in the, in the minivans and around the dinner tables and in the family interactions. Lord, I pray that there would be an approach to life as living sacrifices that husbands would enact whether in the laundry room or in the bathroom or in the kitchen, Lord, that, that wives would enact in conversations with their husbands, Lord, I pray that, that we would respond as Abram did as we embrace the callings that you've given to us, as we think about how we relate to our colleagues, as we think about how to interact with, with ideological or political opponents. Lord, I pray that being a a living sacrifice would inform everything that we do and that we would be those who honor you as we live out Christ's likeness. Lord, we know that you are God and we know that you can do all your holy will. And so we rejoice to present ourselves to you and to say have your way in our hearts. Cause us to know for certain that you will keep the promise and help us to live like we believe it will be. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.